to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Watch your back, Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc. I'm Captain Catherine Janeway of the USS Voyager. Captain Catherine Janeway of the USS Voyager. Welcome to the greatest generation. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys just a little bit embarrassed about having a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> Is that you, John Wayne? <laughs> Is it me? <laughs> I'm Adam Franica. <laughs> you got a little John Wayne going there. I'm Ben Harrison. I don't know what comes over me during the <laughs> intros. I try to give it a different spin every time. Yeah. You want to come to these and feel fresh. Like we're not just kind of recycling the same old fucking Kevin Uxbridge bits over and over again and calling it a new episode of the podcast. There's 360 some different versions of that open. <laughs> All of them unique uh-huh. in their own way. Uh-huh. You know that. I know. It's one of the things people love most about the show is that ha- the the intros are so unique. Yeah, no one's skipping over this. <laughs> yeah, we can we can see in the metrics. No one skips over the Marin. No one. Yeah. We we go through the metrics after every show release <laughs> and are disappointed every time. <laughs> hey, I saw you yesterday. You did. And I've been I've been seeing a lot of you lately. That's yeah. that's been a new thing in my life. A couple of double tap vax fully shaved and 420 friendly <laughs> Star Trek podcast hosts are out there in the world, man. Double tapped. Very professional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we went to a comedy show hosted uh, by... Uh, Jackie Cash and Laurie Kilmartin. Of the Jackie and Laurie show right here on Maximum Fun. When my wife and I were headed out there at the undisclosed location, <laughs> I was feeling some things. Yeah. Because when we moved down to L.A., that was one of the big draws for us was seeing a ton of comedy because that was a thing that we would do every time we visited we'd we'd go to the comedy store yeah and since moving down here haven't seen a single comedy show wow and i was i was really excited to go to this yeah and i was also really nervous to go to this because this is the first social event that i had been to with strangers right and I've got to admit to you something that I didn't say, which was like... You were, you were I, mad I, that I was going to be there also? <laughs> well, I would have just told you that. <laughs> but I was super nervous about it. Like, my body felt nervous on the drive over. Yeah. yeah. In a way that I couldn't suppress. I thought about turning around a number of times. It's interesting, because I was coming from a weekend where I went... Uh, my wife and I went to Ohio for a wedding... And so I'd kind of ripped that Band-Aid off already. You already did it. And You did it before me. I've always been kind of a late bloomer, though. I was nervous about going to the airport in a way that was like hard to distinguish from just nervous about getting to the airport. Is it going to be crowded? Is it going to be a line? Are we going to make yeah. our flight kind of thing? Yeah. You had like a, an entire car ride to think about the specifics of this one social event. You know what made it a lot better was... Jackie Cation is right there, like greeting. Wow. And she is so nice and so funny Yeah. that I was immediately like the tightness in my shoulders just kind of dropped. I was like, oh, that's right. This is Jackie Cation. Like, yeah. this is awesome. Yeah. It's going to be okay. And Lori, <laughs> I talked to Lori after the show and I was like, is this the first one of these you've done? I can't believe it. And she's like, yeah, the first time I've hosted a comedy show at my home. <laughs> and there were like, what, 30 people there, would you would you say, somewhere's? Yeah, that sounds that. about right. 
And I was like, well, how many times have you had people over to your house before this? She's like, zero. This is the first time I've had strangers to my home, is what she told me. Wow. Talk about and ripping off a Band-Aid. Jeez. My brains jumped out of my head and onto the ground. Yeah. I think that after the vaccine, it took me a while to realize that I had the vaccine. And I feel like after that comedy show and after the weekend I had going to a wedding, there's like a paradigm shift in my brain. Mm -hmm. And it feels very liberating. But like there was a moment where I was like eating food inside of a restaurant this weekend where I was like, holy shit, what the hell am I doing? How did I get in here? Once again, you're further along than I am (laughs) or further along than I'm willing to go. But it's going to take some steps. Yeah. But really, the steps that we've taken so far, the hangs that we've had together in our households and the comedy show we went to last night, really like 10 out of 10 amounts of fun. It was so much fun to see live comedy again. Yeah. I I think there was something also very infectious about the comics going up because most of them had not performed live. Yeah. Yeah. Aside from Zoom shows. So this, this was them kind of coming back up onto a real stage for the first time and they were so excited <laughs> and I I want to go to there man I was thinking the same thing like I I'd, I'd only thought about doing live shows again speculatively but to see people experience that euphoria of being back yeah uh, really made it real for me and that could be us that could be us but we plan yeah, man, that was uh, that was big fun. I'm glad we got to do it. And like big thanks to Jackie and Lori for yeah. putting that on. Two of just the funniest and the nicest. Yeah, if uh, if you like stand-up comedy at all, I really recommend the Jackie and Lori show. It's a comedian interviews a comedian kind of podcast, except for it's the same two comedians every week. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting to hear them talk about like the evolution of their careers and the like evolution of jokes. Like, oh, I've got this joke you know, coming together. And it was also really fun to see them perform live after being a listener for such a long time, because you'll hear them riff something on the podcast. And then by the time you see them do something on stage, like something you have heard them say as just an aside on the podcast is now material. And it's like developed and like super duper funny. So (laughs) it's really cool. God, I used to see Jackie play Seattle all the time. Like every time she'd come through Seattle, my wife and I would go see her. And it really felt like on a deeper level to not only see live comedy again, but to see her do live comedy again. Yeah. Really felt like coming back to a thing that I've loved for a long time. Yeah. So that was that was really great. It's nice. Well, Ben, among our viewers' favorite things <laughs> about Greatest Gen is the square we landed on at the end of the last episode. Oh, people love it. (laughs) This is most people's favorite kind of Greatest Gen episode is what we've got on tap today. And the tap is just blowing air right now. (laughs) This is the rare episode uh, where we rolled the nth degree and then I was the one that remembered that we had an nth degree episode and reminded you. Yeah, man, uh, this time we both remembered, and I can't wait to learn more about how this episode was made. It's the season premiere of Star Trek Voyager of the second season, episode one. It's called The 37s. Reverse course. Unless you've got something a little bigger in your torpedo tubes. I'm not turning around. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to kick us right off. 
Ben, with our first bit of nth degree trivia. Kick it, player. This was intended to be the final episode of season one. Really? There are a lot of things about this episode that make it feel like it should have been a double. Yeah. But then everyone decided that Learning Curve was a vastly superior episode in every way to, <laughs> to end their first season with. And, uh, and, that's, and that's how things ended up shaking out. Well, that's why they're professional TV people and we are merely podcasters, I, Adam. I know. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the Starship Voyager, uh, continuing its slow progress across the Delta Quadrant, crawling its way toward home. And they've picked up rust in space. Rust is the first word in the episode. Rust. It's funny how on the screen it also looks rusty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, just just so we're aware, like, through mention and visual. It doesn't look good out there in space. No, space uh, has really got some, some junkyard vibes around here. I love how later on we learn that, that the AM radio band... Too weak for a Federation starship to pick up. Yeah. And yet rust dust from an old-timey truck, totally <laughs> powerful enough for the sensors on, on Voyager to sniff. Yeah. This turns out to be a space truck. Can you name the truck with four-wheel drive? Smells like a steak and seats 35. Can you narrow? Can you narrow? They get it up on screen, and uh, it is an old-timey jalopy of a truck and uh tom paris knows from trucks he's kind of a he's kind of a petrol head to put it mm-hmm. in the uh, in the british parlance i actually read something very interesting though um because they are starting to look at the possibility of doing hd remasters of star trek deep space nine and star trek voyager and um the producers have said that when they do the hd remaster of voyager they want to replace this truck digitally with elon musk's tesla roadster just to oh. kind of ground the episode in reality a little bit more i like that yeah i like that a lot it'll be complicated because they you know they also have to change some dialogue but uh robbie mcneil says he's willing <laughs> They wave their scanners over this truck, and uh, they find behind the uh, steering wheel, it's the Stig from Top Gear. Some say it's impossible for him to wear socks, (laughs) and he can open a beer bottle with his testes. (laughs) The desiccated corpse of the Stig. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. RSVP the Stig. (laughs) You never watched Top Gear, did you? Come on. Of course I didn't. <laughs> it's too much about cars. It's, it's far too much about cars for me to watch <laughs> Top Gear. <laughs> That's almost all of what it's, it's about, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, really is. It's too bad for them. I feel like I've heard people mention the Stig, though. That's famous enough for me to loosely... It's the sort of contextual humor that we've popularized on The Greatest Generation <laughs> that only works for some people. Yeah. They, they get this truck into the cargo bay. They're scanning it. It's full of poop. There's coffee in that horse manure, if I'm not mistaken. It's still got gas in the engine. The battery is still charged, which was probably the most implausible part of this. What is up with this ship picking up the rust but not the poop? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they uh, they detect all the like uh, organic uh, chemicals in the gasoline, but they they don't detect the ga- organic chemicals in the poop. Yeah, they sure don't. 
Kim is uh, is watching as Paris gets himself behind the steering wheel and starts uh, fiddling with the clutch and the choke and everything. And he, he turns on the car. There's a, a moment where the truck backfires and uh, Tuvok is like whipping out the piece and everybody's ducking behind cover. It's very fun. Very funny moment. Yeah. I love the beginning of this episode because you just don't have any sense of where it's going. And this is just like... It's kind of like reverse fish out of water stuff where they like find an artifact that is like even in the past for us, but like pretty familiar. And they are like, what the hell is this thing? I love a wide shot of an anachronistic thing inside the shuttle bay. Yeah, absolutely. That's always cool in Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. This kicks off an episode that continues in the holodeck where Paris and Tuvok reenact the Thelma and Louise movie <laughs> inside this truck. Yeah. And uh, it's really great. Yeah. So they they, uh, they turn on the radio in this truck and they actually pick up a an SOS, like a Morse code SOS signal, and they locate it on a planet nearby and they have to warp off to this planet. And it's a... Type L planet. For a long time, I thought it was a class L. But uh, once I started buying class M, uh-huh. uh, I found that my clothes fit a lot better on me. <laughs> yeah. The thing that's uh, confusing is that, like, planets from some brands are, like, you know, like a, a class M from one planet brand might be a class L from another brand. And, and, and yeah. you just have to try everything on. Uh, class L planets are known as barely habitable. Yeah. That feels like me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a planet that they can't send a transporter through and they can't land with a shuttle. And they decide what they're going to do is land the entire starship. Oh, shit. They put the ship on blue alert. That's the. I, I don't think I'd ever heard this before. I love that there's this moment where Chakotay tries to talk Janeway out of it. (laughs) Janeway seems possessed by the idea of landing the ship, even though, like, as the thrumming strings of an intense Star Trek moment swell in the score and sparks start flying at stations, this doesn't seem worth it. There's something I really like about the way Janeway is written is that she is often a couple steps ahead of everyone else. And yeah. what she has worked through is that if, if there's an SOS signal coming from the planet, it might be humans. It, it almost certainly is humans. And if, if that's the case, they were brought here from Earth. And if they were brought here from Earth, whatever brought them might be available to get the Voyager crew home. And so right. she is like, we got to find out what this is because, like, it's way too good a possibility. The internal logic of the reason really holds together. They, in fact, do set the ship down. And one thing that, uh, <laughs> one thing that was a little bit silly to me was they come down through these like super dark clouds, and then they land, and it's like bright Southern California yeah. light. <laughs> I'm excited about this adventure, and I hope you are too. The energy cost of landing must be astronomical, right? Like everybody has like cut replicator rations for like six months after they pull something like this. I like seeing the uh, the claw feet yeah. extend. Yeah. From the ship? That's cool. Yeah. I did read that in the original design was for there to be a fifth landing strut that comes out from kind of where the warp core is, and it penetrates the planet to get some, like, geothermal energy to make up for some of what they spent in landing. 
Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, but uh, it it just looked like the ship had a huge dick and was fucking the planet. So they they uh, standards and practices actually made them cut that part. Well, I mean, I think they could have done themselves a favor by designing the probe without like a mushroom head. <laughs> yeah, it didn't need balls, you know. And like. For a, a piece of technology more vascular than yeah. you would expect. Yeah, you can find the images of it on on the internet because you know the painter, the painter that did the previs was was proud of the work for good reason. Right. But it it really does evoke that kind of like dragons fucking cars subreddit more than anything <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah. So after landing the ship, they pop out into some away teams, yeah. and uh, half of the away team goes to find the source of the distress signal. And while they're down there, they find another sort of ping on the tricorder for a, a mystery power source. And that's the thing that Chakotay and a couple of randos go to investigate from here. Right. Uh, they find an airplane, a uh, two-engine uh, airplane is, uh, is <laughs> here in Runyon Canyon with them. Uh, this is the source of the SOS. I don't know what percentage of our viewers would be like me, but whenever you see a Lockheed Electra, you think of Amelia Earhart. And so the the surprise was totally destroyed for me at this point. Like I knew exactly where this episode was going. Yeah, I wondered about that because like the the credits do say like credit the actor who played Amelia Earhart as Amelia Earhart in like the opening on-screen credits and yeah they shouldn't have done that that fucked it up for me like i don't i don't know from planes like i was like i wonder if this is the right kind of plane (laughs) right so aboard this aircraft there's there's a little like backpack fusion generator yeah plugged into the distress signal on the plane and that's the reason that they were able to pick it up yeah it's uh the plane's battery did not uh it is not as the trucks did, implausibly lasted 400 years. <laughs> right. So they get radio from uh, Chakotay that the uh, that the energy that they are going to investigate is actually coming from inside some Star Trek caves. So they're going to go meet up with them, and it, we get like an ominous pan up when they leave the airplane because uh, there's an alien standing up on the bluff looking at them, and for some reason they just do not notice this guy. <laughs> He's not hiding at all. No, not at all. I mean, is it suggested that the weird aluminum foil costume they wear could cloak their energy signature for some reason? Because it is bizarre that no one has picked these guys up. Yeah, it's weird. If you were really constructing a Dustbuster Club, I think someone's job is always going to be head in the tricorder, look out for approaching people. Yeah. The Hudson from Aliens guy. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. Right. Especially on a, on a, on a strange planet like this. <laughs> what are you doing, Tuvok? Like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, what is his job? I think he's as confused as anyone else is, really. Yeah, yeah. The the caves that they are they go to investigate are actually the uh, the bat caves. This is the second time we've seen these caves on Voyager, mm. and um, something that didn't happen until this episode that I read about was they they actually found some old relics from the 1960s Batman show in the caves while they were shooting this, which wound up being very useful because Adam West was kind of hanging around the set like trying to tell people you know, old war stories from when he played Batman, and they gave him these relics as kind of like a bribe. Like, hey, like, here's your batarangs. Get out of here. 
buddy. I haven't seen this crusty sock in 50 years. (laughs) (laughs) They find inside the power generator, the source of the power signal that they have been looking for. And this setup looks just like the sort of place where you'd find data's butt. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be checking for data parts here from Jump. Yeah, or uh, $5 Carnival guitar guy. Like, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot about this cave that uh, feels very familiar. Uh, the, the design of the cryo chambers and, and the rest felt very, like, Rocketeer Art Deco tech. Yeah. That's, uh, pretty neat looking. That's a great call, yeah. Like, I, I really like the production design on, on this episode. It's like... Like one of the things that made me wish this episode was a double is that mm-hmm. is that production design. Like I would have loved to see the the world of this planet fleshed out even more because like what we do get to see is so cool. This looks like some kind of cryostasis chamber. This shot here they had to do as a pickup because uh, initially they just ran the scene without it, but legally, any television program that that shows the chambers of cryostasis characters. You're required to do that wipe a hand over the frosty glass yeah. shot. Yeah. Uh, like they actually had to sh- to shut production down in mm-hmm. order to go back and pick that up again because they could have gotten in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's a guild rule and like almost all of the production unions in LA abide by that. Like you can get ejected from the union, you lose your insurance. It's it's bad. We talked about uh, before about how Amelia Earhart gets kind of the moment gets kind of ruined earlier, but also the moment is like really badly executed here. Like she's like wiped the the glass clear and is like, I'm trying to make it out. I think it's a period E A R H. She spells her entire last name out. And it's like, it could not be more clear. It's not, it's not V'ger'd at all. It's not like her name tag is dirty. It's not like we can't, see it because the glass is so foggy we can see it perfectly we can read it faster than Janeway can I was like this scene just takes too goddamn long you can't show the name Earhart in the credits and then have it take this long I know we've run into scenes like this before when you've got 30 seconds to fill you spell out the entire name Ben you gotta yeah. spell it out we ran into this before in the in the last episode of season one if you've time to fill you seize these moments yeah yeah Ben the editors are desperate for stuff like this how many bodies are there eight I, I, I thought it was really cool that Janeway like is psyched about the possibilities here like she's she's a fan like it's, yeah it's cool to see a star trek captain fanboy or fangirl out and right we get it every so often with picard and cisco and now we're getting it with janeway like this is a thing that she is really excited about we go to a mclaughlin group issue one because if you're asking yourself who's amelia Earhart, you're probably not alone like if you're watching star trek in the mid to late 90s i mean you're <laughs> gonna want this scene and so in it, we learn all about Amelia Earhart. She was one of the first female pilots in Earth history. 59 confirmed kills, two silver stars, four bronze, four purple hearts, distinguished service cross, and medal of honor. And the, and the many theories about her disappearance and her possible death. Yeah. And they even go over the theory that ended up being the truth, which is that Amelia Earhart actually kamikaze her plane into Japanese warships. <laughs> 
inspiring the strategy that was deployed <laughs> against the United States a couple of years later. <laughs> the, so it really came back to bite us, Ben. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, and that's the end of the episode. I feel like Paris is always the tryhard during these meetings, and mm-hmm. he's not afraid to get into the ball-kicking machine to offer up a proposal. And at the end of this meeting, he's like, you know, we're running into a lot of trouble uh, integrating our computer systems with these Art Deco computers. What if we just wake these people up and uh, ask them some questions? And that is a crackerjack idea that yeah. they take them up on. You know, it's the shortest route between point A and point B. And so they get right on it. And um, one of the things that's really amazing about this episode is how fast it moves between yeah. idea and execution several times. And th- this is one of those times where, like, we are in the caves like they're like clamping equipment onto these cryo chambers and Kess is down there they've like they they decided in the in the McLaughlin group like we can't have any aliens be around when we wake these people up they they apparently saw the uh the episode of TNG where humans from earth saw Worf for the first time I laughed out loud when they revealed all the work they did to Kess later on which basically just included a comb and a hair dryer yeah <laughs> I thought it was going to involve some loaf yeah. because the look on Chakotay's face at the end of this group when that when that idea is proposed, I don't know if you saw him. Yeah. He does a take here that is hilarious. <laughs> he is definitely not over his own loaf experience yeah. from yeah. a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. I, I heard that when Jennifer Lean walked out of the uh, hair and makeup trailer to go shoot these scenes, uh, there was a dad from New Jersey walking around the, the studio <laughs> lot and he said, what is this, Bebas? <laughs> You're doing great. (laughs) So down on the surface, they decide uh, revive them all at once is the plan. We've got an episode of Star Trek to make, and Mm -hmm. we got to keep things going. Yeah, I don't know if it's a if it's a crossfade or just a lighting effect, but that color coming back onto Amelia Earhart's skin that was cool was really nicely done. I don't understand if you're the person coming up with cryogenics. Why the design of the system at large yeah. is that you want your people standing up. Right. I understand like for storage, you probably want to stack them like cordwood. Right. <laughs> but when you see them thawed out, the first thing I'm thinking they're going to do is fall down. How yeah. can you not fall down? Why didn't they put some cushions out in front just in case? How real would that have been? That would have been great. <laughs> like all of them just fall over. Deactivate locking mechanisms. Tom Paris notices that uh, one of these uh, one of these frozen people, a Japanese soldier, uh, has a a pistol on his mm-hmm. uh, on his belt, and so they disarm him. But they don't do a pat down on any of the other characters, and they all start to kind of come to, and they are not taking the news that uh, of, of this very well. Like the immediate assumption all these people have is that they are being revived by the very people that abducted them and froze them. So they're pissed off at the Voyager crew. Who are you? What is going on here? This moment plays so much with expectations and tone. Like, Captain Janeway is so warm in her introduction to them. Yeah. And the response from these people is great umbrage with their kidnapping. And it's part of what makes what happens next so surprising. Like, you're used to... Starfleet captain diplomacy 
starting a little bit better than this. Yeah, it tends Especially to, when we're talking about human-to-human <laughs> contact, right? It tends to, like, fall on receptive ears when, when, yeah. when speaking to humans specifically. Yeah. They don't pat down Fred, and you know Fred's got a gun under there. Yeah. This dude is pissed. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. I could not get with how fast the Starfleets pull out their dustbusters and then give them up. I know. What the fuck? Uh, Fred Noonan is played by David Graff uh, of uh, Police Academy fame, and uh, yeah. he's actually not the only Police Academy actor in the episode, Adam. Hmm. Did you read this, that uh, all of the sound effects in this episode were provided by Michael Winslow? <laughs> God, he's just the best. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's great. You would never notice it if you didn't read it, you know? How is he not the biggest star in the world? I think, it, to me, he is. If I were a Foley artist on Deadline, I would just phone him. <laughs> yeah, Winslow Get on, him on speed the line. dial. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This rapidly turns into a hostage situation, you know, like Chakotay is the, is the person on the, on the phone uh, outside of the hostage area, and Janeway explains what is happening to them. But these people all imagine themselves to be on Earth in 1937, so they're, like, demanding to speak with J. Edgar Hoover and stuff. And Janeway, like, is still trying to figure out how to com- explain, like, what really has happened. And the, let me actually, like, tell you uh, where you are and what's going on speech is very funny. Like, very, very, very hard to sell that to these people. Yeah, there's, like, a strange naivete about the truth moving the needle here. Yeah. And that it's unable to be proven at this point down in the cave. How many pieces of information would you need to believe Janeway's story if you were Amelia Earhart in this scene? (laughs) I try to put myself in like I just woke up. I'm super mm-hmm. chilly because I was yeah. in. I was frozen. I'm yeah. in a. I'm in a room. I can't see. There's no windows. Everything looks like technology and the future. I feel like I'm primed to like to, yeah. to hear some whoppers in a in a context. My problem like that. is I want it too bad. Yeah. Like like yeah. if I if I died in this life and it, I and I woke up. In a cryo chamber. Somebody's would, in a Starfleet uniform in front of you explaining the future. You'd be like, yes, I knew it. There's probably a system for like making a person acclimate to their new situation. Like I would do that extremely fast. Yeah. They try to prove it by showing them Kess's ears. And uh, they're like, yeah, that's probably just like scarification or something. <laughs> it doesn't uh, it doesn't move the needle. And they're like, well, what about her shirt? Here comes the Spider-Man. And they're like, sorry, that hasn't been invented yet for us. What if I told you that Kess was three years old? <laughs> what the fuck? Whoa! Oh, oh. You mean Neelix and her dating? Ugh. What the hell is wrong with him? <laughs> the second he found out, he should have backed off. He should have done the right thing. Fred Noonan is like, actually, in my time, that probably would have flown. <laughs> Coffee black. Make it yourself. I'm trying to help you see this as an opportunity to grow. Make it yourself. So they actually, like, uh, send Tuvok out with uh, all security personnel, which winds up being, like, four guys. Yeah, I think you want to leave someone back on the ship, right? Yeah. 
Especially knowing that there are some people skulking around this planet. Seriously. I was shocked, A, by how small the security team was, and B, by the fact that they didn't leave anyone to uh, to mind the store. <laughs> I got a question, yeah. and I don't think it's too big of a spoiler if you give me the real answer. Okay. Is there like a 727-style ramp out the back of the Voyager that people walk down to get to the service? Or are they having, like, even after landing, they still have to beam their way out? I think that they were saying that they couldn't use the transporter because of because of the interference in the atmosphere, but I wanted to see that so bad. So they had to have walked, right? Yeah, or like an elevator in one of the struts or something. I don't know. Maybe it's the penis you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the, it yeah. was the penis elevator. It was it was built into the crank, and uh, <laughs> and that's why it's not depicted is that they they couldn't figure out a different thing to do. I think one of the cool aspects of the Voyager is that there's an elevator operator mm-hmm. on on board whose only job is to like hit the buttons for you. Like, <laughs> no, no, Mister Tubak, floor, please. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to go to the surface. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm realizing now that, uh, you know, though that, uh, that pre-visualization artwork is out there on the internet, I'm guessing mm-hmm. somebody is also going to draw it themselves and post it to the greatest gen subreddit. I don't want to see it if it hasn't been blurred out. I just want to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, tile the out, pixelated. Tile out the, uh, offensive bits. Yeah. Let's ma- tile let's, it out so we can share it on, on the internet. Let's have some tasteful penis fan art. Okay. <laughs> Tasteful ship nudes are what Greatest Gen is all about. (laughs) Janeway feels like she may have an angle with Amelia Earhart. The ship is the truth. Like, you you could tell her all the things you want about what the future's like, but there's a ship out there outside the cave, and if she can just get these people topside, that's all the proving she needs to do. Yeah. Noonan is not buying this. He is is her navigator. He is... A, kind of trying to defend Amelia Earhart as being, like, a an extremely famous person, and B, just an agitated drunk. Like, he, he doesn't like that uh, he's in a situation he doesn't understand, and he keeps drinking, and they, they start to notice this, like, oh, this guy, this guy's hitting the flask pretty frequently. And so they, Janeway wants to kind of get Amelia Earhart by herself so she can be like, like woman to woman, this dude is no good, and I want to like show you my spaceship to prove the case to you. I thought Sharon Lawrence's performance was really interesting here. Like Amelia Earhart is never completely closed off to the idea. She's as pissed as anyone else about her circumstances, but she is not clamped down on on it being an insane idea that they're thousands of years in the future. Yeah. Well, also, Janeway has some information about Amelia Earhart that's supposed to be a secret, that she was actually on, like, a secret spy mission to gather intel about what the Japanese were up to in 1937, yeah. which I didn't yeah. know. I, d- I don't know if that's true or not. I That's one thing I meant to do a little bit more research on today that I didn't have time for, because I, yeah. I was coming up with all these other very interesting facts. Really makes you think. What What if we actually had done the research, Adam? It would give us a lot to talk about. I mean, it also makes you think, like, if that's actually what Amelia Earhart was really doing in 1937, would she have, like, come up with information that might have changed the way the U.S. was behaving in the late 30s and early 40s? Like, do they do we think that, like, she would have come up with intel that would have, like, prevented Pearl Harbor or something? 
And I don't know. If you prevent Pearl Harbor, is that like a net good or a net evil? Those questions and more were asked and answered in the hit movie, The Final Countdown. (laughs) Yeah, that movie- One of my favorites. Really answers all the questions it poses. (laughs) That's one of the main (laughs) things about that movie. Uh, (laughs) This is a five-bathroom film. (laughs) So uh, let's go up to the surface, they say. And on the surface, they're picking up these alien life signs that, uh, that we saw a little bit earlier. Amelia Earhart gets the gun away from Fred, and then when they come out onto the surface, it becomes clear that they've rearmed the Voyager crew also, and I'm like, yeah. oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were going to see if this was if if this held any water, not like, okay, we trust you now, here are your dustbusters back. They are in a terrible position for a firefight. Yeah. Their, their enemies have the higher ground. They're hiding behind boulders that move when they're <laughs> shot at. Yeah, hollow hollow uh, TV boulders that... Uh... Yeah, find a thicker boulder, Chicote. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think if you're, if you're set dressing here uh, and you're moving around the boulders that, you know, you know like there's, there's those straps for moving furniture, right? Yeah. Furniture or appliances mm-hmm. that you like, you buddy system, like you put them, over your, put them over your shoulder and you're moving the appliances around. Do you think... Do you think that when you're in the industry that there's such a thing as an over-the-shoulder boulder holder? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pro- that, was worth, uh, that was worth the setup also. <laughs> it's just good on-set jargon that people now know because they listen to this episode. <laughs> a setup a thousand times more complicated than its payoff. <laughs> like, I could have just said the punchline and you would have filled yeah. in all the blanks. You're a smart person. I like the phrase over-the-shoulder boulder holder a lot. (laughs) You don't need to justify saying it to me. I'm happy to hear it. Fred fucking goes out like a chump because Earhart, Captain Janeway, and and he emerge from the cave in a very, like, she is risen kind of of blocking. And then Fred just takes one to the chest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is great. I feel great at this moment. I wanted to see Fred shot, and I got it. Yeah, he got it. He got it good. Janeway kind of flanks these these, uh, people that are shooting at them. She she hits one of them. The others turn around, and they're in they're in kind of uh, headgear that obscures their faces, and also look like it would be really hard to see out of. Like they have no peripheral vision in these in these no. uh, in these masks, which makes them seem like bad thing to wear into combat. I couldn't get a read off of whether or not it was like that sort of mesh that that you see Disneyland characters wear like oh, so like, that the person inside can see out of oh uh, you you think the whole middle strip is that mesh i hypothesized that but like it looks totally opaque yeah anyways we meet john evansville and karen berlin they're very surprised to discover that they've not been in a firefight with briori but in fact in a firefight with humans and and they they thought that they were like defending their planet I felt away in this scene because I'm just not used to new characters introducing themselves first name, last name like this. John Evansville. This is my colleague, Karen Berlin. The 37s were brought here over 15 generations ago. And now there are over 100,000 of us. Yeah. I was like, wow. Nice to meet you, John Evansville and Karen Berlin. <laughs> 
Yeah. Although I did like that this uh, episode had a scene uh, about a Karen taking her mask off at a weird moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for pimping me into a sound that I don't want to play. <laughs> I, I, I also like that they introduced themselves like, like, I'm John Evansville, this is Karen Berlin, that guy is dead, so we won't bother introducing him. <laughs> I mean, this, this scene plays as fast as any other because Captain Janeway's like, truce! Car. <laughs> hey, can we uh, can we heal ourselves? Like, take a little break yeah. and uh, and run some six bay magic yeah. on our people before we keep fighting. And uh, John and Karen, super game for this plan. Yeah. So up in six bay, uh, the doc is having to put an unfortunately still alive Fred back together. And uh, boy, Fred goals here because like. They have to divert energy from the ship to compensate for the alcohol in Fred's body. <laughs> yeah, Fred didn't have uh, his brode before they got in the firefight. and uh, People are pissed about having to give up their rations <laughs> to put Fred back together because he's a drunk. Yeah, he's so besotted that, uh, <laughs> that the, uh, like the light that the doctor is waving over him does not work. It would have been fun if... After being healed, Fred looks up at the doc like, I have literally never felt this good in my life. <laughs> because wouldn't a past person think that? They get in a in a 24th century six bay yeah. bed. They have the they have the dome close over them. Every part of their body, every cell in their body is suddenly Fixed. as pure and clean <laughs> and and energized as it's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. How could you not blast in that moment? Mm, yeah. I'm sure he did. It's just covered by the, the dome. Yeah, he hit the arch. <laughs> it's also just a funny scene because he's like, it's the tearful confession of love on the deathbed moment where he's like telling Amelia Earhart, like, you were married back in the 30s, but I love you. He's looking at her. He decides he wants to live. <laughs> and then like, the doctor is like, all right, all done. And he has to take it back. He, not, I don't understand this. He takes it back because he's going to live? Because he's a fucking coward. Come on, Fred. Share your feelings. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time, and they send in their books, they send in paintings they send in uh, crochet work it's so cool and uh i want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters i want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves and you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use squarespace it'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool creative project captain's eyes only. Head to squarespace.com scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code scarves to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time 
that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I can use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. So in the McLaughlin group, issue two, they meet up with John Evansville and Karen Berlin and get the intel on on what's going on here. We come to understand that the people that they thawed out were entombed in a shrine, mm-hmm. a shrine to the 37s is what they're called. Right. Uh, because uh, an alien species called the Biori, uh, they, put a, they put a strip on the planet Earth, allowed it to remain there for between 10 and 15 minutes, and then pulled gently. Yeah. And what happened is they, they, they pulled a number of human beings off of the planet in 1937. Kind of a surprising and, number, actually. Like I know. They actually showed the humans to other alien races. Like, you're not going to believe this. Like, yeah. it's actually a little disgusting. Yeah. And the other aliens were like, Jesus, it looks like a carpet sample. What the <laughs> fuck? We get so much backstory here. Yeah. He's like, yeah, like, like we're actually descendants from them. And we and the 37s were brought here to be a slave race. And then there was a slave uprising. And we destroyed the Biori and their ship. Yeah. And, uh, and, and hey, check it out. I don't know why you didn't notice on your flyover. We've got cities here. Yeah. I'd well, love to show you them. Their sensors were not able to penetrate the atmosphere, I guess. But uh, but yeah. Look like, out a window, Janeway. John Evansville gets over the total destruction of his worldview so quickly. Yeah. Because what he's explaining is like the 37s that were frozen and the airplane with the signal are like are like the center of their religious cosmology. And yeah. 
And Janeway's like, sorry, they, we revived them. They're here on the ship with us. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, anyways, do you want to come check out our house? I was having brunch at the Briori Celebrity Center two hours ago. <laughs> You mean to tell me <laughs> that I've been living a lie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You're so right about that. John Evansville, he has an elasticity to his worldview that I think is very commendable, especially yeah. for a religious person. And that's definitely the context that this is put in, right? Yeah. There, There is an uh, alternate ending in one version of this script because like the the news that the Briori ship was destroyed in this slave uprising it like it's not addressed directly in the scene but you see it on the faces of Chakotay and Janeway like that was the thing that we came down here looking for this ship can get across the galaxy quickly and it's it's been totally destroyed and you know whose face we don't see that cross is Jack Hayes a character we haven't talked about up until now the black farmer character right and and I think what's interesting is that the racial makeup of the unfrozen are totally uncommented on. Really, there's a there's a Japanese soldier. Yeah, there's a in the group. A South Asian woman and a sari in the group. Yeah, most of yeah. them don't have speaking roles. Um, That's true. But there was an alternate ending uh, of this story in one version of the script, where after the Voyager leaves, the camera kind of like pans from the cave over, and the Briori ship is like right there, and they just didn't <laughs> notice it because they weren't looking around that carefully. In this episode, is like almost exactly like at the beginning when when John Evansville is standing up on the bluff, and they just don't see him there. They cut out an entire act was actually about the conflict between Chakotay and the Native American character that they unfroze because <laughs> the person that they unfroze had a lot of thoughts about Chakotay's belief system and <laughs> how unfamiliar they were in any way. Yeah, actually, uh, I heard that they hired a guy to consult on like what, it, what people from the 30s were like, mm -hmm. uh, and he... he claimed to have lived through the 30s and could, you know, tell them practically what it was, but he was born in 1975 and he had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> what happens here? I forgive it. I really do, Ben. But John Evansville is like, look upon my cities and get excited. And we elliptically cut to after the tour of the cities. Yeah, yeah. We aren't even going to get a mat for this. Show me a mat. You have 10,000 mats in the library of Star Trek. Yeah. You can't you can't just do a a mat montage? Give us a mat montage. Give us something. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. The story of this episode is so unconventional for a Star Trek app, and I and I like how unconventional it is because like it's it's the aftermath and Janeway is processing like oh my god like these cities are actually dope like this is a cool place to live mm -hmm. and they have offered to let the crew stay here and then like the last I don't know 10 or so minutes of the episode are about this dilemma of like what if a lot of the crew just want to stay and don't want to go back to the A quad and I like I think that the like that dilemma would have felt so much more heightened if we'd seen the cities, if it's if they seemed like a great place to hang, you know? Without knowing how this episode was going to conclude, I really felt 
an attraction to the idea of this being a feeling to return to over and over again. That question being, at what point do you get off the ship versus versus risking it and keeping going? Right. Like, I don't want this to be the last time. Yeah. Like, and and this shouldn't be. Like, every cool planet they stop off at should have a moment of truth. And this is a similar question to the one I asked you earlier about how much would it take for you to believe if you're in Amelia Earhart's position? Like, right. how good of a planet would it take for you to be like, you know, I'm incredibly homesick and there's a ton about being there that I miss. Yeah. There's a chance I might not make it home and maybe this is where, this is where I fold. Right. You know? It's very interesting to me that the captain is never wavering on that. Like, she does not she does not she's got tom mervin's at home yeah i think john evansville is a is a is a pretty good plan b though yeah she she turns to chicote and she's like golden retrievers only live 10 to 12 years (laughs) if i'm going to see that dog again it's going to be a clone of a clone of a clone (laughs) of a clone of a clone it's left me a little disturbed the other thing that they cut elliptically over is the announcement, because she is hanging out in her ready room and talking this over with Chakotay, and she's like, maybe I should just make this decision for the crew, but I don't feel like I can. And she says, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell them what the deal is, and then they can decide for themselves. We hear the bosun's call, and it's like, this is your captain. <laughs> if you're choosing to remain behind, meet in the cargo bay to exchange... Your com badge for a batleth sword. <laughs> <laughs> and we will send you on your way. <laughs> yeah. I wanted I wanted to hear what the pitch was. How did she put it? Like did she try and talk them out of it in announcing it? Isn't that great character development to know which tack she took yeah. in her in her announcement? Yeah. I, like I agree. Chickened out in not showing that. I, Agreed. I really I really missed that in the episode. Yeah. Kim and BLT are the two that get sort of shown talking about the idea of staying on the planet, and they both are very drawn to it. Yeah, this is a scene inside Neelix's restaurant, which is the location reason for wanting to stay on the planet. Like, it's actually a deterrent <laughs> for remaining on the Voyager. Yeah, every bite they take, they, they're more and more on the side of like, maybe we should actually get the fuck off of this ship. I know. <laughs> so John Evansville, uh, what are the restaurant options? Are we yeah. talking about just like fast casual chains mm-hmm. or uh, anything with a tablecloth? <laughs> In the kind of oral history of the production of this episode, a lot of people that were in the writer's room talk about the fact that they did want to show the cities originally. They wanted to cut to the matte painting and then cut to the city street and show what it was like. But they decided not to actually, not for budgetary reasons, but it would undercut the believability of the story. No one would believe that the crew would stay eating Neelix's food if you got to see how great these cities actually were. It's really true. They did the only thing they could. Yeah. I wish we knew how long they've been out here already. I think that would really give a greater sense of gravity to the choice that everyone has to make. If if this is... Yeah, is this the beginning uh, of year two of their voyage? We have no way of knowing at this point, and I wish we had. Like, if for some reason this is year three or four, and we've just been skipping along these episodes in this way... Yeah. uh, Yeah, I think you can understand more or less a person's decision to to stay or go. Yeah. 
we do get the uh, the kind of final moment between Janeway and Earhart uh, outside in the in the shadow of the ship, where Earhart explains that they're uh, uh, she and the other unfrozen caveman thirty sevens are going to stay here on this planet and uh, and live with the uh, with their descendants and not go with the Voyager crew, which. I understand this from a writing standpoint and from a story standpoint, but I was like, how fucking cool would it be if they wrote Amelia Earhart onto this show in this moment? Yeah, I would like that too. God, and like the fucking Japanese soldier guy, like that would be so cool if like he was like training to be a security guy under Tuvok or something. (laughs) Fred has a really great question in this scene, which is like, are we allowed to fuck any of these people? (laughs) Yeah. That question goes unanswered. That's something that Kim was definitely processing also. Like, there are tens of thousands of new sexual opportunities on this planet. Like, he would never never say it out loud, but you can tell he's kind of working through the implications of that. Like Star Trek itself is to us an inexhaustible resource for Harry Kim (laughs) on this new planet. (laughs) The reveal here is really nicely done. We get a walk with Captain Janeway and Chakotay down a corridor where they're feeling some real nerves about what they're going to see behind the door of the cargo bay. Is it going to be uh, a nice orderly line yeah. exchanging comm badges for batleths or or not? Yeah, and it's a, uh, it's a math problem too, right? Like they yeah. have 150-something people on board and they're kind of right above the minimum they need to even operate the ship. Could you imagine being the guy that's like the, the 51st person who wants to leave and they're like, <laughs> actually... Uh, we're gonna uh, need we're you to stay, Fred. Planet's full, <laughs> but no. I mean, there's that moment. Like, I felt like for a second that Captain Janeway was wondering whether or not Chakotay would would step through and like stand on the other side of the line. But that's not the case because when the door opens, there's no one inside because they've already left. Ben. Yeah. Half the crew is gone, and they took the truck with them. Can you And we we cut down to the planet surface, and Jack is, like, flooring it through these city streets, <laughs> ignoring every traffic law that there is on this new planet. Kim is up in the bed of the truck going, woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's big fun. Yeah. That empty room is very reassuring. Like, this is the moment when Janeway comes back on the bridge and, you know, makes that kind of reassured eye contact with all of her crew that... I wanted at the end mm-hmm. of season one. Like I needed a yep. moment like this and yeah. it's a great moment. It's like, and it's also just cool as hell because they're, they're like the ship moving out is taking off the sur- the surface of the planet. Like it's something we've never seen before. It's so neat. I think binging on Netflix retroactively fixes that problem that yeah. seeing it in real time created. Like uh, you don't really feel the mistake of episode and season order when you watch it the way we're watching it. So totally. So it's effective. And so when the Voyager takes off and irradiates the 37s that are that are on the cliff watching them leave, you really feel some things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to admit I was really sad to see Amelia Earhart vaporized in the in the heat of the warp engines, but it felt like uh it's better than nothing, right? You know, like there's just not knowing what happened to Amelia Earhart. Also, Voyager, 
like retract the dick when you're when you're taking off. <laughs> yeah. Like don't just let that thing dangle. Yeah, that thing flopping around in the atmosphere as they take off. Yeah, it's yeah. gross. Nasty. Well, did you like this episode, Adam? You know, I'm really easy to get along with most of the time. But I don't like bullying. I don't like friends. And I don't like you. I did like the episode. It was, you know what? Like absurd has a connotation, right? Yeah. yeah. But I'm calling it absurd without that connotation. Like <sighs> this is a, this is a crazy story. I was thinking for the longest time about how weird it was that that this was a season premiere episode because as I remembered it, five dollar carnival guitar was like a weird story told halfway through a season. <laughs> That's what this felt like to me, and that's what made it feel so weird as a premiere. But $5 Carnival Guitar was the season finale of the first season of TNG. And now I don't know what to think anymore. Yeah, It's like Mandela Effect. I thought I thought for sure $5 <laughs> Carnival Guitar was like one of the many anonymous TNG episodes that were just slotted in, into the sequence totally. of this series story. But no. And now I still maintain that this was unsuited for a premiere i still think i would have kicked it to episode three or four yeah in the season but i, I mean as a i did like the episode yeah making it the end of season one in retrospect does make it seem like just a knockoff of tng in yeah. a weird way like it's 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 a pretty different story but like that that inciting right. incident feels so similar like down to them finding the satellite in space and thinking about it as a relic the same way that the truck is treated at the beginning of this one. Yeah. So, yeah, something very interesting happened there. And uh, if only some real researchers had, had worked on this episode with us. Every Starfleet ship should have a scan frequency for old-timey shit. <laughs> I know. It yeah. shouldn't be an accident that they run across... NASA platforms yeah. and old-timey yeah. trucks. If Carl's Hole is out there, you just got to predict that some of this stuff is going to happen. It's true. Um, it's yeah, true. I like the episode a lot as well. I mean, it's one of those ones where it feels so breathless and I wanted to like spend more time thinking about some of the things, especially the the last like seven minutes being like, is the crew going to break up here? Is this the end of the mission stuff? Like, if that had impregnated the entire episode or more of the episode if they'd split it up and that like was kind of more of the tension in episode two of a two-part arc or if it had been like an end of season one and it planted that and then we resolve all that in you know season two episode one or something like that um but yeah i mean overall i like the episode a lot and i uh it's a case of an episode that left me wanting more which is what you're what you're looking for i think it seems like this is a show at this moment in time that does not know where its actual tension lies. Yeah. Because this is two episodes in a row that have chosen the path of least tension. <laughs> I hope someday soon that this show finds that and, and mines it for the value that it has. Well, Adam, do you want to mine our Priority One inbox for the value that it has? Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Ben, our first priority one message is of a promotional nature. It is for a podcast called We Can't Call It the Enterprise. 
The message goes like this. We can't call it The Enterprise as a podcast about Stargate, which spends a suspicious amount of time talking about Star Trek. (laughs) The hosts, Valerie and Scott, moved apart, then decided to make this dumb show inspired by Greatest Gen. Wow. They watch an episode of SG-1, drink a blue drink of nostalgia, then crack wise. (laughs) Come laugh about melodramatic bad guys, security worse than wharfs, and the far-off planet of BC, Canada. (laughs) So check out We Can't Call It The Enterprise. It's available at not.enterprises or on various podcast apps. Hey, another uh, podcast with a .enterprises domain name. Yeah, that's pretty fun. We own 1701-D.enterprises, and (laughs) these guys have not.enterprises. That's great. Uh, It's also another show that has been inspired by Greatest Gen. I love reading this. A couple of pals getting together, talking about something that they love. They listen to our show, and they're like, we could do that. (laughs) Yeah. I I could do a little bit of research. (laughs) Check that show out. Adam, our next Priority One message is of a personal nature, and it's from Mutant, and it's to anybody, but especially Ben and Adam. That was a great anybody. Goes like this. Stardate 42069. Mm. I keep listening to two guys nice. talk about some sort of Star Trek constantly being un- interrupted by Buffalo Bill ad- advertising sex dolls? Angry French collaborators? Peter Griffin house renovation? What the fuck? But I love it. Started at episode one, halfway through Deep Space Nine, and can't stop listening. Hope this P1 keeps you guys out of the pocket of Big Rod forever. That's how we get you, mutant. <laughs> you think it's going to be dumb, and it remains dumb. You keep waiting for that to stop. No. Never going to stop. Keep listening. Can't stop, won't stop. Uh, <laughs> yeah, P1s are a great way to keep us out of the pocket. Not that the pocket has any interest, but... Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> we ain't going in there. Our final priority one message is from Vedic Joe, and it is to Vedic Brian and Vedic Matt. The message goes like this. Sorry, guys. Can we delay our monthly strategy session for proposing ourselves as TGG's chaplain corpse. <laughs> Matt, you haven't been a viewer from the beginning like Brian and I, but you'll find that Ben and Adam are the most thoughtful and open-hearted hosts this side of the Delta Quadrant. Hopefully, we'll find a way to thank them appropriately someday. Wow. This was a this was a very nice thank. No kidding. Could you have a, a chaplain of the Bajoran religion if you were in a, an armed service? I don't know. I don't know how I mean, that works. But I hope you could, and uh, I'm glad Vedic Joe, Vedic Brian, and Vedic Matt are out there uh, providing some counsel to people. Yeah, just wearing some very comfortable brown clothes (laughs) at any and all occasions. Yeah, getting told to take their sacramental earrings off by Starfleet because Starfleet has a weird problem with people expressing their religious belief. Yeah, keep an eye on your orbs, Joe, Matt, and Brian. (laughs) Well, if you'd like to get a Priority One message, we would sure appreciate it. Head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message, and we really appreciate it. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! It's easy and cheap but sometimes that's who the drunk Shimoda is. It's it's Fred. Yeah. It's Fred Noonan. He's drinking on screen. He's 
fucking up left and right. Like, he is a liability to Amelia Earhart at every turn. Yeah. He professes his love and then retracts it for some reason. Uh, and he gets shot in the chest. <laughs> There's your drunk Shimoda. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. You uh, you called it, buddy. I'm just sad he didn't die. I'm sad he didn't die, too. I'm, I'm sad that Chakotay wasn't the one crew member who was like, well, I guess this is my stop, Captain. Uh, thanks for walking down to the cargo bay with me. But uh, uh, only if he had done that would he have risen to being the drunk Shimoda of the episode. <laughs> that would have been just an amazing curveball. Um, would have been amazing. But, yeah, David Graff is also just such a fun actor yeah. to watch. Like, he is... Uh, I like I'm not really a police academy person like I never really watched those movies growing up but I uh I see him uh, you know come out of that cryo chamber and I'm like the guy from police academy yay <laughs> You know what's fun is to see David Graff do like 10 out of 10 broad in police academy and then see a actor bring a nuanced broad performance to this which is like He's taken like 10 miles an hour off of the comedy fastball yeah. and like like being a crafty pitcher about it, you yeah. know? I like that. Objection noted. We'll do this without you. Do it. Do it. Well, Adam, uh, we got to come up with what we are doing next on this podcast. I believe, uh, is it your spin or mine on the, uh, on the game of buttholes? I got us here, Ben. Did. Oh, so, so I, I guess I have to you. spin it as well. Yeah. Well, next episode is season two, episode two, Initiations. Chicote faces an unlikely enemy, a Kazon boy, who hopes to achieve warrior status by killing him. Chicote's life was on, is on the line, and it, uh, that's something that I'm sure is very exciting to you, Adam. I wonder if a Kazon child is born with Kazon pinecone hair. It's probably a very painful natural birth, if so. That really smarts on the way out. Well, Adam, uh, of course, we are on square 78 after hitting one of those caretaker squares here on the uh, game of buttholes. I'm going to go ahead and roll this bone and see how we will be performing our next episode. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. It would just be poetic if we went from extensive research to no notes. <laughs> oh yeah, Cotton and Nebula is the is, uh-huh. is the only thing we could hit that would would change the game. Here I go. I rolled a one. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. So we're on square seventy-nine. That Cotton nice. and Nebula is still threatening us, but uh, but it's a regular old episode next week. Hey, good. I like those. You, you know, we always turn an nth degree episode into a regular old episode somehow. <laughs> we find a way. Greatest Gen yeah. uh, finds a way. <laughs> it sure does. Uh, thanks to everyone uh, who listened, and thanks to everyone who recommends the show to a friend, family member, coworker. Uh, I guess be careful if you recommend it to a coworker. It does violate most companies' HR policies to recommend this show. Right. Just remember that HR looks out for the company and not for you in, in saying all that. Got to thank a couple of people. First and foremost, let's thank Adam Ragusea. The Goose! The Janeway song, the theme song of The Greatest Generation, Colin Voyager, and a lot of the other original music on the show. Uh, of course, riffing off of the Picard song by Dark Materia, our original theme song, 
Uh, I'm hearing Adam, that right now. Adam Ragusea got a YouTube channel. Go check it out. Adam Ragusea on YouTube. He's going to teach you how to cook. Whether you like it or not, he'll teach you how to cook. <laughs> got to thank Bill Tilly, our social media manager. Part of the fun of being a friend of DeSoto online is meeting other friends of DeSoto through the many conduits available to you. There's drunkshimoda.com, the Discord. Uh, there's Twitter using the hashtag greatest gen. That's how we met Bill Tilly. Basically, we were Twitter friends. Yeah. He's Bill Tilly1973. He runs our at greatest trek Twitter and Instagram accounts. And yes. he is always posting really great and funny things there. Check us out every Friday on Twitch for TGITGG. It's the bigger love of the FOD. Keeping that going, and uh, we're having a ton of fun doing it. It's a, it's a great hang every Friday. Uh, usually starts around 4 p.m. Pacific time, and uh, I, I think it's worth checking out. I think so too, and it's and it's one of those things that only exists for the time that it does. Like we're not like if you're if you're available, yeah. you show up and it's there and it's a fun surprise, and then it's gone. Well, I think that just about does it. So. Uh, we are going to leave you here. Tuning back next week for another great episode of Star Trek Voyager and an episode of The Greatest Generation Voyager in which either Adam or I will become a man by killing our podcast partner. I've been waiting for this episode for a long time. Rite of passage episode. <laughs> There's no surer of a thing than you being the one to kill me. <laughs> I don't know, man. You're looking pretty shredded these days. <laughs> I don't think I can beat you in a fight. I'm just trying to become harder to kill, but I think <laughs> I think the ending remains the same. Fair. Yeah, it's just I, I just break more of the sweat doing it. I can show. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.